What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 50. Becky Green, plant-based speech therapist, discusses feeding problems and language delays in children. When it's dinner time, I got something you should try. It's crunchy, green, and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories, and it looks like many trees. When you're having dinner with me, broccoli. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, Food for Life cooking instructor, health and wellness coach, and passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, behavior change, and motivation so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I hope that you keep coming back as a regular listener. You can find more of my work, including health and wellness videos, at VeggieFitKids on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hello, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. It is so good to have you here. This week's episode is really interesting. And I had such a great time talking to Becky about feeding problems. We talked about some of the really common feeding problems that parents experience when they start feeding their kids. But we also talk about some things that even I as a pediatrician may not know as much about, which is why I am so grateful that there's experts in these areas such as her. So this is something that you might be interested in, especially if you have a child that you feel is very restrictive in what they eat and what they will even consider putting in their mouths, this would be a good episode for you. We also spend a little bit of time talking about language delays and some problems that children may have when they're a little bit older and how that might even tie into some of the feeding problems. So Becky is very knowledgeable and I hope a lot of this you can start to apply to how you feed your children now. So let me tell you a little bit more about Becky. Becky Green, MA, speech language pathologist, wants to help parents get to the root of their child's picky eating. Many parents who want to adopt a plant-based lifestyle are fearful of how to feed their children who limit their diets to processed foods. For these children, eating something green instead of their usual cheese pizza or goldfish crackers might seem impossible. For parents who are following a vegan diet but still can't get their kids to try actual vegetables, there is hope. There can be many reasons behind picky eating. Working with other healthcare professionals, Becky helps parents uncover the reasons behind their child's feeding challenges. The goal is to eat more of those fresh and fibrous fruits and vegetables. Becky received her master's degree from the University of Colorado Boulder and has since then taken additional training in orofacial muscle function, also called myofunctional therapy, and feeding therapy. 
She is trilingual and works with patients in Portuguese and Spanish. When not working, Becky loves experimenting with plant-based recipes. One of her current favorites is Dr. Greger's new cookbook and rock climbing with her husband. And you can find her at greenspeechtherapy.com. That's green like the color, G-R-E-E-N, speechtherapy.com. Let's hear the conversation between me and Becky. Something you should try. It's crunchy, green, and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories, and it looks like mini trees when you're having dinner with me. Broccoli. Today, I have Becky Green, who is a speech language pathologist. And I am so pleased to have you here today, Becky, because today we're going to cover some topics that are so important and so prevalent when it comes to feeding children. So thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dr. Yami. Um, I found your podcast, uh, I think it was a little over a year ago, and um, I really I really loved having this as a resource to share with, with my friends and my family. Um, you know, it's in the plant-based movement, it's, it's great to have more and more medical voices that that back up kind of what, you know, what we know as far as eating healthy and eating plants. And so it's really great to have, um, have your podcast as a resource and, and be able to share that. Oh, thank you so much. And I agree a hundred percent. I think that it's important to get this conversation out there. More and more people are curious about plant-based nutrition, but also I think one of my goals as a pediatrician is just to inform parents reassure them and to help them relax a little bit more because I feel like we're in a day and age where we're trying to be so perfectionistic about everything and parents just get super anxious. But before we launch into all of that, I would love to hear more about your story and what, how did you learn about plant-based nutrition and how did you get to where you are today? So um, I started working as a speech therapist many years ago. Um, speech therapist or speech pathologist is kind of interchangeable. We, we go by that term um, here in the United States and then in other countries we're known as speech therapists. So um, I find speech therapist is usually a little bit more you know, e easy for people to remember and to say so. Um, but I, I started out as one about six years ago. Before that, I was a teacher. I taught um, younger children, and I also taught languages. Um, so I speak Spanish and Portuguese. And uh, I think, you know, the loves of my life, um, you know, including my husband and my family are also languages and, and plant-based eating. I think those are some of the things that I'm most passionate about. Um, but uh, a few years ago, um, I was starting to have some, some you know, just problems digestive wise and, and just not feeling so good. I was eating a pretty healthy diet. I mean, you know, not the, the standard American, but still, you know, like more of a kind of a paleo diet where, you know, I still had, um, sometimes I would still have dairy and, and eating a lot of other, uh, animal based products. And I just, I wasn't feeling good. My energy wasn't good. And I went to, um, I went to a doctor and, uh, you know, I, this I went to a naturopath and she she gave me some allergy testing. We did some testing and said she said you know it's it would be a good idea to cut out dairy and eggs. It seems like you're sensitive to that. So you know I cut that out and I noticed a, a you know pretty positive change. Like my my appetite, which would sometimes you know I just I would feel 
just honestly nauseated a lot when I was eating those foods, cut those out. And I was, you know, feeling better, but um, I was still starting, I, I began to look at kind of the ethical aspect of, of eating so much meat and the impact on the environment. So I started kind of reducing there. And then um, when I met my husband, he actually grew up a vegetarian. His parents raised him as a vegetarian for ethical reasons. And he had always been a vegetarian and, um, you know, super healthy guy, like very, very athletic, very, you know, strong. And so for me, I was like, wow, you know, someone can grow up without eating meat. And he didn't eat a lot of, I mean, he did eat, you know, dairy and eggs because he was vegetarian. But it, for me, it was just kind of like, you know, kind of that mind shift, I think that we have that like, oh, you need to, to be strong, you need animal protein. And so um, because I couldn't eat dairy and eggs, I cut those out and I, you know, would have bad reactions anytime I'd try and eat those. Um, and and he didn't eat meat. We just kind of became vegan by default. And I think at that time when I when I was kind of like forced to cut it all out, um, then I was really able to look at more of the, the ethical aspect of it. Um, I think when something's in our life, like when we, we feel like we need to have something in our life, like animal products, then we have to kind of make a justification around it. You know, we have some, kind of that cognitive dissonance around it. And so we kind of make a justification, but once we're like, you know, we don't need this, um, we can take it out of our lives. Then after that, you can kind of start to really see, see um, what's really going on. And, and you know, you, you can kind of pull back the curtain uh, of Oz and just kind of see what's, oh, wow, this is really, you know, a system that's, that's pretty, um, pretty sad, pretty harmful. So I, um, you know, when, when we kind of decided to be, to go vegan. I, you know, read a bunch of books. I really loved the China study. Um, I loved Proteinaholic and I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't get enough of it. I loved reading about it. And also at the time I was doing home visits, um, seeing a lot of small children in their homes with speech and language delays. Um, some of them also had feeding issues. And one thing I just saw over and over was, uh, you know, their diet of just pure processed foods. So it was just a stream of like, you know, Doritos for breakfast, um, sometimes chicken nuggets and French fries for lunch and, and then ending with veggie straws for the evening. And that was like the closest to a vegetable that they got, you know? So, um, and it, and it was really concerning to me because I know how much in my own life eating, you know, like just my own energy levels, my own, my own health, um, everything that's, that I've gotten from eating a plant-based diet. And I mean, I'm not perfect. I still, you know, sweets are my weakness, uh, chocolate I still have, and it's not always, you know, hundred percent dark chocolate. Sometimes it's, it has a little bit of sugar in it. So I know, I understand, like, I'm not perfect. It's, it's difficult. There's so many like food choices thrown at us. Um, but, but just kind of looking at, at, you know, these children and how much they've, they've restricted their diets for different reasons that we can go into, but, um, just how much, you know, I really wanted to do what I could to kind of shape, um, the choices that they were making for, for their food, because really the, the food that we eat, it makes such a difference in, in how we're performing all day and, and how we feel that our levels of energy and, and whether we have energy and focus, a lot of that can come from our food. Yeah, absolutely. I love your story. So that was just six years ago that you started this journey in changing your diet? So my diet change started actually about three years ago. That's when I when I first really started, you know, transitioning my diet, making some changes, and then really going completely vegan probably about almost about two years ago is when we just made the switch and yeah, and haven't looked back. 
Yeah. And I, and I love what you said about how it's not until you make that paradigm shift that it's not necessary to consume animal products that you start questioning the whole foundation of it, you know, because I, I have a, a TEDx talk that I talk about this. It's like, whenever you feel like you have to eat meat, it seems like a necessary evil to kill animals for me. It's like, okay, well you, something we have to do. So we have to have this whole system around it. But then whenever you realize that, wait a second, actually, not only do we not need animals, we don't need animals to survive. We can actually thrive without eating animals. Then that's when you're just like, oh my gosh. Okay. So I have been sustaining this system for all of these years, not really realizing it, but it is, it's a, it's kind of a hard mental shift sometimes because a lot of guilt comes with it. And all of a sudden you get angry with everybody. Like, why didn't anybody tell me the truth? You know? So, um, but, but I remember feeling that at the very beginning and, and getting super passionate about wanting to tell everybody. And then after a few years, you kind of calm down and it's like, okay, well, people have to find out on their own. You know, it's like one of those things you can't force people to make the mental shift. Uh, they have to do it on their own. So, you know, you, you've had this experience of being a speech therapist, going to people's homes, seeing firsthand what these children are eating, but also you just have the experience of knowing that most parents, they struggle. They struggle with feeding their kids. They struggle with their kids saying that they want to eat this and this and not vegetables and, and healthy foods. So what are the common feeding problems that parents do experience when they're raising their children through the different stages? So um, we always go back to, to their history with birth, um, with breastfeeding. So it always, it starts at birth and um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why parents have difficulties with breastfeeding. Um, sometimes it can be, you know, the mother not producing enough milk or the baby having a tongue tie, um, sometimes just different needs of positioning. And, and this isn't my area of expertise. There's a lot of really good um, international board certified lactation consultants who are excellent at doing this and, and they do wonderful work in this area. Um, I think sometimes that, you know, with the bottle feeding, and I totally understand there's, there's, a time and, and need for bottle feeding um, with babies. And, you know, there's parents who, who go for that option. Um, I know that there's different books out there too that I can recommend it and offer at the end um, for your, your listeners. But it'll just kind of discuss how you can help support bottle feeding if that is the, the choice that you have to make for your baby so that um, the correct muscles are developing. Uh, that usually with breastfeeding, different muscles are targeted than bottle feeding. Bottle feeding is a much easier way to, to feed. So um, the muscles that, that later like promote our jaw development, that promote our teeth growth, that um, they're also developed in part of our feeding, our chewing, and our speech. All of these muscles, when when a baby is bottle fed, they're not quite uh, used as much as they are in breastfeeding. So I think kind of going back, you know, was there some challenges with breastfeeding? And then that can sometimes create some imbalances later with the, the function, with the use, and, and the development of, of the muscles, um, which can then when a child transitions to solid foods um, can make it more difficult to transition to those solid foods. So I know, you know, some babies, they, we start introducing foods at like six months, you can start introducing some purees and some softer foods and begin that, um, 
that journey of having them begin to eat. Um, and then as they get older, we can start introducing more and more foods. Uh, there's, there's a movement um, for baby-led weaning, and there's definitely some very positive aspects about it, as long as parents realize as well to, to look for what are what's developmentally appropriate for that age, um, considering chewing and, and feeding and the kinds of foods and textures that a baby can be offered at that age. Um, but it is very good to let babies explore, to have um, you know input in their mouths. Babies love to put everything in their mouth, and part of it is for them to explore, to, um, you know, babies need to get messy. Babies need to touch foods and fill foods. And part of even their hands exploring foods is kind of a precursor to them then putting it in their mouths. And so, you know, again, we're in a world that's very fast paced. We're moving, you know, at super speeds and we don't want baby to get all messy and then have to, to change their clothes and everything. I mean, I say, you know, feed, feed babies in their diaper. That's probably the fastest thing. Cause then you just wipe them down and, you know, go on to the, the next thing once they're done. But um, also that transition to foods, I think, you know, we can see that there's so many foods marketed to babies, uh, the baby cookies, the, the baby food in a jar, and really, you know, babies have survived for hundreds and thousands of years without having, you know, baby jar food and baby cookies. And, <laughs> but I think it's definitely marketed that like, oh, this is baby food. This is what kids eat. Kids eat this soft processed um, grains that are, you know, just really kind of void of, of nutrients and, and they don't, they don't offer that mastication. They don't oft, uh, offer that chewing experience that babies need. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when transitioning, and again, there's some great resources out there uh, as far as how to begin tr to transition your baby to um, from breastfeeding to, to foods and letting them explore, letting them try different foods. And, you know, if, if baby did kind of stick with a certain food, say until they were a toddler, like just again, eating those really refined foods, it, it can be very difficult at that point to then try and transition them to more fresh and fibrous foods because um, they don't have that experience of, of the chewing of you, you know, and of the taste. Sometimes then the taste can be unpalatable because, you know, they've never had this experience of this green vegetable in their mouths. Uh, so, you know, I think it, it can start early um, with the, the initial feeding experiences and the initial experiences around eating. And even going back to, to babies, there's always kind of a structure that a speech, um, speech and feeding therapist we look at. Um, is there something physiological that's going on that might be preventing this baby from wanting to eat? Because eating doesn't just happen at meal times. It happens being ready to eat and to feed happens all during the day. So uh, I know this was something that you had touched on with a, a doctor in one of your last podcasts who's a GI. Her name is... Dr. Sudegi. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And how she had talked about constipation and the the role that constipation can play in, in not having an appetite or, you know, just not wanting to really sit down to eat. You might just sometimes as a child just want, you know, to put in, again, eat a few of those veggie straws, but not really having an appetite to sit down and eat a full meal. Because if, you know, if your system isn't clearing out, if things are getting stuck along the way, then then it's going to really reduce the appetite. And as speech therapists, we definitely want to screen and refer back to the pediatrician if, you know, if we're asking, like, are they having a, a daily bowel movement? You know, are they congested? Sometimes um, being congested in this area, it can, 
it can be difficult to, to eat and to feed for a few reasons. So if a child is always, you know, stuffed up, if their nose is always stuffy, constant chronic colds, um, they're, they have a reduced sense of taste, so they're not tasting the food as much. They might not like it because of that. I mean, if we think about it, when, when we have a cold, we don't like to eat as much. Um, and and also the, the mouth breathing part is hard. It's hard when you have to, when you're not able to breathe through your nose and you have to just breathe your mouth while you're chewing. So, you know, you're not, you're not going to want to do that too much because, you know, oxygen is more important than food. So, you know, babies and kids will opt for that. So really like ruling out anything that could be um, medically based. We always look for that, refer back to, you know, the pediatrician, back to talk to an ENT if like tonsils are, you know, huge and swollen and, you know, getting in the way again of, of good feeding. And then again, as well, if they're not having regular bowel movements, that's a big um, red flag. So yeah, that's a good point. I actually hadn't ever thought about it that much, but there are some kids, especially that might have chronic allergies or even chronic food sensitivities that are causing the upper airway allergies. And so it may cause them not to want to eat, but also what it can cause is that they would rather have the hyperpalatable foods because otherwise they can't really taste the other foods or get as much sensation from the other foods. So never thought about it that deeply, but that makes a lot of sense to think about it that way. What are some of the other main reasons that you see that children reject foods or have trouble accepting new foods? So another thing as well is if, if a child hasn't developed good um, chewing patterns, you know, they have a difficult time chewing. This is something that as speech therapists and occupational therapists, um, both of us are trained in, in working on feeding. So if they're having a hard time chewing, they, you know, they haven't developed a more mature chew because our chewing changes as we get older and it matures and, you know, it goes again from just sucking liquids to, to using a back and forth movement. Um, they're going to prefer foods that are, are easier to just chomp, 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 um, that will dissolve, dissolve in your mouth. Again, you know, veggie straws, I, it always comes back to that because honestly, I see it's like, it makes up like 50% of, of the diet of a lot of the kids that I see. I think too, with the marketing part, because they kind of get parents thinking, I was eating veggies when really, I mean, it's like various amount of actual vegetable. But so if you think of a food like that, you know, you can really, you don't need you know, parents think about what's oh, a crunchy food. Well, it is for about two seconds. You crunch it down, but then all of it can just kind of go into the middle of your, your mouth and just swallow down. It just becomes mush very, very quickly, very easily. Whereas if you're eating raw foods, um, you know, raw fruits or raw vegetables, those take a lot more time to chew, to move back and forth, and then to safely swallow. And because a lot of these children haven't developed these chewing patterns, they still have kind of a high gag reflex sometimes because they haven't had enough experience with food being back there, being chewed on. Um, they still, you know, it's for them, it's like, chew and swallow. Like they, they want foods that they can chew easily and just swallow down. And so that's another problem that, you know, if your child's a really messy eater, if, um, and if they have some other signs too, of like, you know, maybe drooling more than, you know, having a little bit more drool when they're talking, when they're eating, when, you know, just having kind of that messy eating sometimes shows us that there might be like, a, a some difficulty with managing the food, uh, on a, on a more like, um, mechanical level. So, so we want to help them with, with, um, improving their chew with, with working on introducing different textures, you know, I, working again with dietitians, we work, especially if a child has really limited their foods, you know, okay, so what are the foods that we really need to get in? And, and if necessary, sneaking those in by 
making smoothies and things like that. But then we also want to see that they develop that mature chew because it's so important for, um, again, our facial development. It's so important for our teeth development. Um, and so if we're just eating these soft foods, processed foods, I mean, and veggie shakes are great, but we do need to be actually chewing foods too. It's, you know, it does so many different things for, for our, our our whole body really uh, clears out our sinuses when we chew. It stimulates our sinus area to kind of help clear out our sinuses so that we can continue to, to breathe through our nose. Um, it's relaxing to the body. It promotes teeth growth in the right areas. So, you know, so that we have less crooked teeth as we get older. And, and so there's so many functions that it, that it does for us. Um, and even just the, what you had mentioned as far as the sensation in the mouth, like there's children who, who, kind of have that reduced sensation from not having a lot of, you know, um, a lot of experience with feeding and textures and, and this kind of thing. And so they aren't really filling their mouths in space. They're not really too, you know, these are a lot of the kids that I'll see that also have kind of that imprecise articulation and, and they're maybe, you know, having messier eaters and drooling a little bit more because they're not really filling where their mouths are in space. And so just kind of targeting that, you know, developing that sensation for them is something else. Um, and then they learn behaviors around it, you know, especially if a child has had some um, unpleasant experiences around um, eating, if they've choked a lot, if they've had, um, you know, times where they've gagged a lot on foods, uh, then they're, they're going to become very protective of what they know feels safe to them. And that's the food that they're going to stick with. So the food that they know, like, you know, this doesn't require me to to chew it too much and a few chomps and this one will go down. You know, those are the foods that they're going to want to stick with um, because they feel, they feel safe around it. And then also, you know, from a, a medical perspective too, and I don't know if this was one that I'd heard you touch on or not, but just, I mean, the, I know I've, I've heard as far as like the sugar, you know, you get a sugar spike and then, and then it goes down. And so these really starchy foods gives, give us a nice spike to our, our blood sugar. And then we're going to want that again, because, you know, it's just that pattern of like, you know, eating something really sugary, starchy, our blood sugar goes up and then it drops down dramatically, you know, drastically. So we want something else to pull it back up. So there's so many things that, that can be involved. And sometimes we think it's just, ah, they're just picky eaters. They're just being, you know, but really physiologically, there's a lot going on with their bodies that is kind of leading into this kind of, uh, dislike of, of vegetables and, of, um, foods that aren't processed. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. And you're right. So complex. Just thinking about all the different muscles and the different movements required to just chew food. And if some of the kids aren't using those muscles and aren't developing them, then it can become more of a problem as they get older, even related to some of the speech problems you see. Well, you know, given all of that, what are some of the techniques that you usually recommend to parents just to help their kids accept more plant foods? Yeah, so I, I definitely encourage parents if they have concerns around feeding, especially, you know, if their child is really limiting their diet, seek out, you know, talk to their pediatrician and talk to their pediatrician about feeding therapy with their occupational therapist or speech therapist to see if it's, you know, right for them, if that's something. For, for the more general, um, as far as just in general offering what I see works for, for families is it, you really do have to go slow with kids. Um, you know, cause you really want to create, it's not just about getting through dinner. It's about creating a really a lifelong 
relationship with food and with vegetables and healthy eating and really just keeping it in, you know, having a, a long-term perspective. Like, you know, I know that it's, it's a little rough and bumpy and it's, it's hard, but we know that long-term when you're eating more plant-based foods, um, you've got just better out health outcomes all around. So, so just keeping in mind, like, okay, you know, we're just setting the stage here for a lifelong relationship with food. And I think part of that, um, some of the activities that, that I'll mention to parents is, you know, playing with food outside of meals. So having some time to just explore food and, and that can be, um, taking your child to the store, uh, to let them, you know, explore the different foods, let them touch them, smell them, you know, knock on the cantaloupes, like let them just get out there and just have fun and, and try and do this. I know, I mean, that might not work right after, you know, you've gotten off work and you need to buy a bunch of stuff and get home and cook, but on a day when you're more relaxed and you can do that, um, or going to the farmer farmer's market, uh, letting them choose some of the foods. So, you know, which foods, which one do you want? Do you want the broccoli or do you want the lettuce? And then letting them choose that. And then remembering that that doesn't mean that they're going to have to eat it. So, you know, it's, you know, we're not going to use that later to be like, well, you chose this. So now you're going to eat it. Um, because again, we're some kids, uh, studies have shown that some, that many children to, that are picky eaters, not necessarily the ones that are, you know, if there's something more medically complex happening, then, then definitely they need to be seen by a, um, a feeding therapist, but for our children who are, are cons you know, considered picky eaters, maybe they've had some difficulties in the past with foods, uh, that it does take them 10 to 15 exposures of a food before they'll eat it. So again, that might mean that it's on the, the table, um, you know, sitting in front of them 10 to 15 times before they're going to be like, okay, I'll give it a try. And then at that point, when they do give it a try, it doesn't mean that they're going to eat a whole bowl full of, of whatever that is. It means that they will try it. So, so again, just having to respect that, you know, trying to recall our own memories of food. I know that like now I love Indian food. I remember that when I first tried it, like sometimes the flavor of it just, it just seemed different to me. Like it was just too different sometimes. So I would try it and I'm, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. And now it's like I cook with, you know, curry and, and turmeric and all these different spices all the time. But, but my initial palate, because I wasn't really used to those foods, I, I didn't like, I didn't dislike them, but it, it just took some time before I was like really gung ho about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Those are great tips. And that kind of brings me back to what you were saying about when kids reject foods because they've had these negative experiences with them, they've either choked or had some kind of reaction. I think the same thing can happen when we pressure our kids to eat. <laughs> so whenever we're constantly like, eat that, you're going to have to eat that regardless. Don't leave the table until you eat that. I mean, I think that that traumatizes kids and then they like do the opposite and they don't want to eat anything. So I think just like what you're saying about going slow and respecting the child and almost kind of like being casual about it, like, Hey, okay, well, there's your food. You can eat it if you're hungry, but you don't have to. Um, and it kind of takes away some of that pressure for them to have to eat something. And I feel like when we do that, it allows them the space to decide for themselves. And then they're more likely to choose those new foods without that overbearing, like you have to eat that sort of approach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, at, at mealtime, you know, when we are introducing new foods and if the child doesn't want to eat it right away, you know, maybe we just say, well, can we just invite this? you know, these cooked carrots onto your plate. Can we just let them, you know, just putting, you know, two or three. And again, just letting the child to, to look at them. 
for, you know, a few meals, maybe even smelling them, maybe that's as far as they get, um, especially for the ones who are really picky. Um, and, and again, picky, I'll, I'll go a little bit more into that too, because, because it's a label that I, I mean, it's a term that I use, but again, I know it's not a label that we want to stick on a child. <laughs> yeah. So, tell me more. Tell me more about that. Why well, I, I saw that one of your blog posts is why we shouldn't call kids picky eaters. So what, what's the foundation of that thought? Well, again, I think, I think labeling a child, you know, this is who you are. This is what you do. You were picky around food and, and it just kind of sets it up already for the child to kind of do a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, like, oh, okay, I am a picky eater. I'm not going to like this food. And, and really, again, we want to have, you know, a positive or at least a neutral relationship around food because mealtimes can become such battles for parents. Um, and, you know, I, I think again, we just, we want to, we don't want to give a really strong response. Some kids, sometimes kids to avoid eating, what they'll do is they'll get into arguments. They'll, you know, they'll get into, and, and so when we give them back, when we give them kind of go into that cycle of arguing with them and, um, you know, kind of amping it up at the table, then that's great because now they have successfully, you know, avoided eating because they've argued their way out of it. It's ended in tears and now they're not, you know, going to eat anything. So, so again, I think, um, if we can just, you know, picky, picky eaters, I've heard some of my colleagues also call them hesitant eaters or a little bit more hesitant around eating food. And, and, you know, I just use this as a term more of, to describe their habits, but again, it's not something that we should label a child as, you know, and, and we really want them to have a, a, a positive relationship around food and kids as they get older too, they will rebel. They, and, you know, do we really want the, that rebellion to be around, you know, food and, and what they won't eat and what they will eat. And, and so anyway, I just think that, um, that we should, again, just kind of avoid labels, um, and helping children to just like, you know, encouraging them to explore. It's okay. Again, if they don't eat it, I, you know, as far as with, with having some of those like cooked carrots on their plate. Okay. So maybe next time they, they smell them, maybe they take a little bite, but also we want to be mindful of like, are we filling their plate with pasta first? I mean, are we like overloading it and then putting a few of these other little things on there? Um, maybe if we give them a little bit less of their preferred food and a little bit of the new food that we're trying, you know, if they're at that point where they're going to try new foods, um, just being mindful of how much are we loading their plate? Because if we really are loading it to full, they're going to go for their favorite foods first, and then they're going to be full. And then it's really not fair of us to ask them to keep on eating if they're already full too. So, so again, just being mindful, um, offering choices about, you know, okay, do you want to scoop it? Do I want to scoop it? Sometimes just giving kids choices, making them feel a little bit more like they've got some say in it, that they've got control, you know, so do you want to take the scoop of carrots? Do you want me to take it? Do you want to scoop it out with the red spoon or the blue spoon? You know, just kind of giving them choices to be like, oh, okay, I get to have a say in this rather than, um, you know, this is the food and you're going to eat it. It's like they get to, to decide, oh, okay, I can, I can help to, to make some of these choices. Yeah, that's great. And I agree with you hundred percent. I don't, I don't like the term picky eating. And I actually feel that most children aren't quote picky eaters. Um, you deal with a lot more complex issues that have to do with restricted eating for a lot of the oral motor facial stuff. But I think that there's a great majority of children that aren't necessarily picky. They're just not hungry. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit more about appetite and how we have learned in this culture to completely ignore it? <laughs> so 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. How do you ever help parents learn how to work within their child's appetite? Yeah, I think, a, again, a good, something that you, you've talked about before is, is that if a child, so if a child is, is snacking, if they're filling up on these snack foods all day, which again, we are so conditioned to think that these are like children's foods, like these are what kids eat, you know, up until what, 50, 60 years ago, these kinds of foods, these bags of pretzels and chips and all this stuff, these kids didn't eat these kinds of things. So um, now the, the, it's become more of a regular part of diet and snacks, like always having a snack around and always snacking in between meals. And then when you get to the meal, you're not hungry. And so um, I think, again, working around uh, a child being hungry, because when they're actually hungry, the food will taste better. The food, it will be easier for them to try new foods. Uh, so, you know, if, if they're used to having a snack, maybe try cutting the, the size of that if they're not eating at meals and, and they're saying that they're not hungry, you know, they're showing signs that they're not hungry. They're just kind of picking at and pushing their food around. And even if it's food that they like a little bit more, they're still not eating very much of it. Um, if they're used to having a snack, maybe cutting the size of that snack in half. Um, maybe, you know, I, I think also, again, in our modern culture, there's so much time spent sitting and kids aren't getting out and running as much. I mean, when I was a kid, it was like we would go out and run in fields and play outside all the time, very unsupervised. But um, you know, <laughs> but today it's not like that at all. Everyone is, you know, very much kind of kept indoors a lot. And so there's children aren't really even working up appetites. They're spending way too much time on technology, which, you know, is a whole other topic. But but it's, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done, I think, to help in stimulating a child's appetite. Um, I, Yeah, I don't... If you have some things you want to add on to that, because I think it is very important. 
No, you touched on all of the ones. I think juice is becoming less of a regular thing. I think parents are learning that juice isn't like one of those required foods that you need to feed children. So that helps a little bit. But at the beginning of when I started residency and medical school, it was still a very regular thing that parents gave their children. And that's, I mean, it has calories. So even though it's a liquid beverage, it has calories. So for some children that are that just have very sensitive metabolisms that they feel when they have those calories, they, it takes away their hunger. They may not be hungry at mealtime if they're in, in milk, like drinking a lot of milk in between meals or chocolate milk, because some parents feel like, well, the only way they'll drink milk is if I give them chocolate milk. I did have a patient once who was still on a bottle at four years old and having chocolate milk all day, 75th percentile BMI, and the parents were concerned because he didn't want to eat. Mm-hmm. So I had to explain to them that he was getting calories all day long, you know, and so they needed to stop the chocolate milk in the bottle sort of thing. So I think sometimes we just don't think about that. And we, we just get really stressed out when it comes to mealtime and our kids aren't eating, but really they're getting sufficient calories, especially for some of these more lean children that they just don't need as many calories as we think they do. And I think sometimes what happens is we're used to seeing babies grow really rapidly at the beginning and they're just like doubling and tripling their weight. And we just get so much validation from that as parents. And then when the weight doesn't change that much after they become toddlers, parents get very anxious. So one of my jobs is to reassure them, show them growth charts and to talk about the child's appetite. We don't need to be chasing kids around all day and be like, eat, 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 you know, like wait for them to get hungry, drink water, you know, don't have just these regular snacks where you sit down and eat puffs. And like you said, pretzels and those kinds of things. If they're hungry, great. I, I recommend fruits and vegetables for snacks if possible. I know that sometimes on the road, it can be a little bit more challenging, but that way, whenever you get to mealtime, you have something more to work with. You know, they may still be a little bit more restricted in what they want, but at least they have hunger. And like you were saying, hunger helps. But also I wanted to make the point that a lot of adults may not have experienced hunger for many years as well, because we're used to eating all the time. And whenever you learn how to eat within your hunger signals, you do realize how much better food tastes when you're actually hungry. It's like all of your receptors are open and things just taste amazing. So it's good to just kind of remember that and play around with that. This is a bit that I'm very passionate about this. So that's why I'm like going on and on, but yeah, no, no. (laughs) other things. So um, I think you touched on this a little bit, but can we get a little bit more into what are some red flags that a child has a more serious feeding problems. And we talk about some common things. We talked a little bit about some facial muscle or a motor um, strength stuff, but what are some things that might signal, hey, there's something else going on here besides just being a typical kid? Yeah, I think, um, I think again, rolling out any of those other underlying causes that could be, you know, because some children really will restrict um, because of not, you know, having regular trips to the bathroom and being constantly constipated. So again, rolling those out, um, some some children, and this is more of uh, an area where an OT would treat, and they're wonderful. I love working with OTs because they also treat from a sensory perspective. So um, if a child is really um, 
sensitive, like hypersensitive to certain textures, you know, they might even start gagging before the food has gotten close to their plate, you know, so if, um, because there's certain, and it's, you know, there's the ones, the kids who will do it more as a behavior, like, ah, oh, I don't want to eat this, but there are the kids who will honestly start, you know, a food will be coming near them. And whether it's a smell issue, whether it's, you know, the, the touch issue, there's, there's different things that are triggering their senses to overreact. Um, you know, some children even are very, high, you know, sensitive, overly sensitive to, to light, to noise. So again, if your child just seems to always be on high alert, always, you know, really, because if we're on high alert, I mean, some, some of our, our, our senses have not, um, in these children have not, sorry, let me just fix my little earpiece. Here we go. <laughs> Integrated as well in certain children. And they need help with with working on kind of lowering those those sensor um, those sensitivities to a point where they can be relaxed and calm to eat. Because when you're eating on high alert, you are not um, you know it's it's not good in for many for many reasons for digestion for um, again you're you're just not able to be there to, to really chew your food to eat it to digest it. Um, so again, if you have a child that really is seems to be overly alert or, you know, really has those meltdowns around eating that, that they just seem to, to have a very physical response, then that can be a red flag. Um, eating less than, you know, 15 foods, we, some say between 10 and, and 20. So if there's less than 20 foods that your child will eat regularly. So really they've, they're only down to say like 10, 10 to 12 foods that they're eating regularly. Um, you know, whether that's, again, like some of the processed foods or sometimes they'll eat potatoes or, you know, some of these, usually I find it's like softer or processed foods that they'll eat. So if they've really restricted that much, then that can also be a sign that something more is going on. Um, and whether that's sensory based or it's more of a motor based thing, then that's something that needs to be rolled out. Uh, and then again, I think too, with needing to to look at the whole child, there are instances where things like um, physiological uh, things like tongue, the tongue being able unable, which might have happened at birth. I mean, when they were born, obviously it was there at birth, but when they were born being unable to breastfeed, if that tongue tie is still there, you know, later on, it for so for those children that have a hard time moving that food side to side with their tongue and chewing. If there is, you know, like restricted tongue tie, again, it's not something that we diagnose a speech therapist or occupational therapist will make a note of that and then send them back to their pediatrician or their ENT. Um, but again, that can be something that can also cause some issues with, um, with being able to, to feed and swallow. And again, I think the, the whole airway issue. So um, a, a red flag is if your child really is spending most of the day breathing through their, their mouths and not their nose, because our mouths really are for, for chewing, um, for eating and for talk, you know, for talking. And, and so that's, that's what we use our mouths for. Our noses are for breathing. And so if your child is like, chron like chronically um, congested and stuffed up nose, um, that will actually affect their, not only their feeding, but their development later of, of like their jaw. Um, we know that with with mouth breathers, um, there's a whole component of of less oxygen than if you're breathing through your nose, um, of reduced taste, taste buds, taste sensitivity, and um, even even further down the road, looking at orthodontia and things like that, there's a greater um, 
incidents of, of misalignment with teeth and, and things needing to be remediated with the orthodontist if a child's constantly breathing through their mouths. So, um, so again, I think looking at those kinds of things like how, how is my child behaving? How are they, you know, are they always needing to drink like huge amounts of water when they're eating because they do not have uh, a more mature swallow to get that food down? So are they having to wash their food down rather than being able to chew it and swallow it down? Um, again, incorrect. It's interesting because incorrect, you know, swallowing. So something that we call a tongue thrust is where the tongue is actually sailing around the mouth to, so that a child can swallow back that food where it, it's it's really an, um, a more a younger baby swallowing pattern that we see um, as a as children get older, and sometimes they'll be using the swallowing pattern. They won't have you know developed something more mature. So that's when you'll start to see kind of those teeth opening up at the front. You'll see you know the crooked teeth coming forward because the um, the tongue is usually in the wrong place. And so we teach correct resting posture as well. Um, speech therapists that are also trained in something called myofunctional therapy or muscle, basically muscle mouth function therapy is that we want children to have their, their tongues, using their tongues, having them rest in the right posture during the day, keeping their mouths closed during the day, um, and breathing through their nose. So awesome. Wow. I'm so grateful that there's people like you out there because I definitely don't know all that stuff. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Thank you for doing all of that stuff. Well, I want to switch gears just a little bit, but you did highlight earlier that there can be some association with some of these feeding problems and speech problems. So I want to talk a little bit more. Something that I'm curious about is more the pronunciation enunciation differences. Which ones are the ones that are normal that you see in different stages of growth and which ones are the ones that are more concerning? So, um, you know, as we see babies going through their development, they'll start babbling. First of all, looking again at a baby, there should be a lot of babbling, a lot of vocal play. Um, and, and if you have a more silent baby or one who's not doing those kind of rhythmic babblings, ba, 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 ma, da, da, you know, that sort of thing, um, there can be some reasons behind that. So some things that need to be checked out hearing. And again, just kind of checking out the, the whole um, muscle movement component, but as a child gets older, so I, and I have a chart that I can um, share with you as far as um, development and, and parents can also get this from my website. Um, I hope soon I had a little glitch on trying to get it uploaded. So hopefully I'll get it uploaded soon, but just sort of a, an outline of, of different milestones that children should, should meet. And it is important to look at these milestones. Every child is different, but we do expect that, you know, most children will reach these certain milestones at a certain age. And if they're not, then, then there might be a reason behind it. And it is very important to look into it. I mean, I've, I've seen children who have gone undiagnosed with hearing loss and, you know, for they've had hearing loss for a year or, or more. And, and that's why they haven't been babbling that because they haven't been hearing that sound input or, or their babbling has been a little bit less typical, a little bit more like screeching. And, and, you know, they just, parents just thought, well, that's my kid's personality, but, but it was really kind of due to hearing loss. So, Mm -hmm. so looking at different milestones, um, you know, between one to two years old, it's normal that, you know, a a little toddler is making a lot of mistakes that we're not understanding a whole lot. You know, they're starting to say at the first year of life, they're starting to say one word, you know, little phrases, they'll start popping out their first words. By 18 months, we, they should have at least 50 words. So, you know, we're expecting them to start saying more. And then at two years of age, um, that's where they have, have more of a 
you know, a little bump in, they'll start putting two words together. We can start understanding maybe about half of what they're saying. Um, they'll start having around 200 words. And then between two to three is also when their language just continues to, to, to grow, um, to double quite a bit, to multiply. Uh, and that's when we'll expect to be understanding more and more of what they're saying, less errors between two and three. And then between three and four years of age, really when a child is four, we should, every people should be able to understand your child 100%. So at the grocery store, wherever your child is at, you know, whoever they're talking to, they should be able to be understood by people who they know or don't know. Um, and if they're still having a lot of um, speech sound errors, then that's when it's a good idea to, to get it looked at. And, um, or also if they're still not saying a lot, you know, if they're still um, not, not putting together Together, longer sentences between three and four is really when they'll start putting three or four or more words together. Some, you know, some kids are out there making more complex sentences, but they're at least creating some some of these good three to four word sentences that we're understanding pretty clearly. Some of the harder sounds to make, um, like the S and the R and the Z, the J and the Ch, those, you know, after four years old, there still might be some time where they're kind of putting those together. Um, in, I know, for example, in the schools, like, so I've also worked in the school districts, and for a child to, to qualify for um, articulation therapy, they, it needs to be considered a disorder. So it has to be considered extremely delayed. Um, and at that point that it's considered extremely delayed, um, again, this isn't that, oh, most children should have it at this age. It's that almost all children have it at this age. And we're only intervening, you know, because of special education code and law um, when it is considered a disorder. So waiting until a child is, you know, seven or eight years old to address an R or an S, um, they've had all those years to learn that pattern. But under, of, of saying it incorrectly, of saying it, you know, and then, and then from there we get, um, we start to see them and, and then we have to kind of work on correcting that. So, um, because again, it's special ed code, so we're not intervening early, but I definitely think it's good to, to have a knowledge of when do these sounds come in, you know, um, how much should I be understanding my child and, and what if, what if they're not clear after four, what if they're still, you know, not speaking clearly. Um, and again, to qualify for school-based services, most children need to be below the seventh percentile. Um, so, you know, if your child is still struggling, um, but they're not, they're not that far behind. They may not qualify for school-based services, um, but there are many um, speech therapists who also work in in private practices or at hospitals and things like that. So it's best to to seek out that help if you do see that they're you know they're not making their milestones. They're struggling a lot and they're having a lot of frustration around it. Mm -hmm. Well, I know one of the problems here is we just don't have enough speech therapists. So a lot of kids get put on the waiting list until they're older. So if it were up to you if the children are still having problems with the R and the S, at what age should they really start getting the therapy? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I think I would want to look at a few different things with the child. I'd want to see, are there things that are um, muscle-wise that are impacting their ability to say it? Is it does the child have, for example, with the S, you know, sometimes we think it's just as simple as imitating an S sound. But again, if that child has always had an open mouth, it's always been a mouth breather, their tongue is rested forward. Um, and that is kind of the new position of their mouth. So they're now saying their S is like, you know, it's always, everything's coming forward. That might be something that actually we need to correct the resting posture first, and then we need to work on the S. I, you know, it kind of depends on what is causing it. So for some children, it's just a simple um, 
intervention of, of learning where the tongue is placed and, and they're able to do that. But for other children, again, if it is uh, kind of a, a oral motor or a resting posture difficulty with, sorry, I know I'm, I'm trying to think of like thinking family, you know, parent-friendly terms. So <laughs> I'm trying to think in, in my terms that the parents can understand rather than using my clinic speech. So sorry about that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I would, I, I think beyond four, you know, between four and five, looking at it, you know, at least having an, my eyes on that child, I would like to see them and just see, do I see other things that, that might be impacting their ability to say that S or R? And then by five, I would definitely want to start working on all of the sounds because um, just from some of the other speech pathologists who have gone before me and who have really, you know, said that waiting, the longer we wait, the more the child is, is using an incorrect pattern. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're learning something that then becomes more and more difficult to learn. And then sometimes these are the children that, especially if things like the resting posture for their tongue or other things haven't been ruled out. Um, sometimes even, you know, tongue tie or um, things like that, if those things haven't been ruled out, then these are the children who will be working on their R's and S's in middle school. And, you know, that's no fun for the child and they're missing out on, on their school day. Um, and, and they're very, at that point, often they're pretty self-conscious too of, of how they're sounding. So, um, so again, I, I do think, you know, again, early, the earlier, the better knowing as far as developmentally what's appropriate and, um, and then seeking out help. So, okay. yeah, great advice. Okay, great. So, um, I know that you're trilingual. Why are you trilingual? And is there an advantage to raising a child bilingual or with more languages than that? Yeah. So, um, this is, um, this is a misconception that, you know, especially when I'm working with children who are, have some a language delay, because those are the children I see. And so when, when they come in and they have a language delay, sometimes parents are told, or sometimes parents believe that, you know what, we've just got to focus on one language. Um, we've got to do, you know, just English only. And sometimes this will be families, because I, I live in California and I work with a lot of um, Spanish speaking families. And sometimes the parents won't have dominated English completely, but they're being told, you know what, you need to speak English. Your child's three, he has autism, you need to speak English with him. And and the, the research really doesn't back that up. The research shows that getting the parents, when parents speak to their children in their strongest language, um, that's giving that child the best, the best uh, base of, of language that they can get. Because if they're hearing a language that, you know, they're not they're not getting their parents' strongest language. Their parent hasn't quite dominated English. Or even if they have, um, even if, you know, as a parent, say you have a child and, and they have a language delay and you're concerned, well, should, you know, should we really speak with them in German or should we just stick with English? If you're giving them, you know, the opportunities to to hear German, to speak German, you're giving them, you know, you're speaking to them at a level that they can understand and that they can imitate. So long as there's a good input, a good source of input. So you're giving them a good language foundation and there's a good source of language output. You know, they have the practice you're singing with them. They're, you know, able to make choices, you know, in Spanish or whatever language that you're speaking with them. As, so long as they have that reinforcement and that practice, then they can learn um, children, almost all children that are capable of speaking are capable of learning two languages. So long as they've got the, the right reinforcement. Um, and there's definitely an advantage. I mean, they, they, there's uh, studies out there that show that children with um, who know more than speak more than one 
language have better attention. Um, they show better ability to kind of to, to focus their attention and to um, sort of weed out interfering um, things that might interfere with their intention. So they're able to be more focused. Uh, they also, we've shown, there have been studies that showed that children with pragmatic language um, or their social language, that they're able to kind of take on different perspectives because we, we know that language isn't just translating the words, but there's also a lot of, um, you know, how do I want to say it? There's a lot of um, just different almost a different personality that we bring in when we speak a different language. We, we, because we're doing it from a different cultural lens. So we're, you know, taking uh, a different cultural lens and we're speaking in a language like that. So we're not just translating words, but we're also bringing, you know, uh, the culture with us when we're speaking. And so there's definitely a lot of advantages to raising children bilingual. Yeah, that is so funny that you said that. Cause right when you were saying that I was thinking, you know, cause I'm bilingual, my or my first language that I learned was actually Spanish, but I did all of my education in English. So even though Spanish is my first language, English is my dominant language, but I would spend every summer with my grandparents in Panama and my cousins and family members speaking Spanish. So whenever I speak Spanish, it, I feel like it, it's a different me. Like it's a different, like I have the memories of that culture and, you know, I'm sure just have you have experienced that the words are different. Like there, there are some words in Spanish that I can't translate into English because it just, there's no good word to explain something that there's a perfect word for it in Spanish. Sometimes I just want to use the Spanish word for something because it's just so perfect to explain this feeling I'm having or this thing that happened. Um, so yeah, I just wonder if there's different places in our brain that that gets stored and almost comes with all of these things, these emotions and feelings and sensations. So that's very, very fascinating and interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. So why are you trilingual? Did you grow up learning these languages or did you learn them later? No. So actually I, I, in seventh grade, I took Spanish and I, I did terribly. I was like, wow, I'm, I guess I'm just never going to speak another <laughs> language because, you know, I, I walked away from a year of Spanish knowing maybe to count to 10 and a few colors and that was it, you know, and I just thought, wow, I just, I really don't have a knack for this. But um, in college, I had an opportunity to do uh, a study abroad to go to Spain for six weeks. So I thought, okay, I want to learn Spanish before I go. I don't want to go and, and show up and not, not know what I'm doing. So um, I, for a semester before going to Spain, I did an online kind of intensive Spanish course. And then I also took some Spanish classes as well. And I started um, watching some telenovelas in Spanish that were like very beginner telenovelas. And they really, I mean, they just really got my interest. Like I, like, I really liked them. I would, you know, after class, I'd go to the language lab and, and sit there and listen and, you know, watch them and laugh and cry. And just like, they really just kind of drew me. And I, I, so, so I think again, finding what your child's interests are or finding what your interests are and, and learning language around that. And that goes for learning one language or two or three, you know, when you can get someone talking about what they're interested in, then that's a great way to, to get them to learn a language. Um, so I, I went to Spain for this summer. And then after that, I was just, I, I loved it. You know, I loved, um, I loved the language. I loved the culture. I came back to, to the United States after that. I decided, you know, I want to continue to study Spanish. But I also had an opportunity um, to go on a, a service mission at this time in Portugal. And so I decided to go and I was in Portugal for a year and a half and uh, did the service mission. So I learned Portuguese and learning, having known Spanish really helped because the two are, you know, are very similar. Um, 
and and then after that I, I came back to the United States. Um, I I went back later on to live in Portugal again for a time, and I I was considering actually getting my um, my master's, my PhD in Portuguese because I, I really wanted to teach Portuguese literature. Um, I love you know poetry and and all of the literature that um, that that comes from Portugal and from Brazil. So I considered doing this, but then I had a friend of mine say, you know, I, she was a, she was a Spanish professor and she said, you know, I love, I love being a professor. I love teaching. I love literature, but it is, you know, the job market is tough for this. It's a, you know, be, especially at the time with professors, they were no longer tenured. They were just, you know, teaching one class here, one class at another university and, and they weren't being, being a professor wasn't really a, a stable job. I mean, there's a lot of people that I know that, um, kind of face this challenge as they're trying to find work in in teaching languages. So, um, so I considered, okay, maybe I want to do speech therapy because I can still work. You know, I can work with families who speak Portuguese or who speak Spanish, and and I can also do something where you know I'll be helping people. There's you know there's a big need for this. There's a lot of families and and people who who need speech therapy. So I decided to go into that instead. And that's where, you know, I, I ended up getting my master's. I studied in, in Colorado in the University of Colorado in Boulder. But I still definitely, um, you know, miss, I miss having those classes, those language classes. And, and it's, it's something that I really try and support families, you know, especially families who are here and, and might not feel like, um, like their culture is valued. And so sometimes they just want to streamline their children into learning English. And so just really supporting them, like, you know, you were doing a great favor to your child to, to be helping them to be bilingual, you know, by speaking your strongest language at home, you're creating good communication throughout your lives because if they ever get to a point where they can't communicate with you in, in your home language and you can't communicate with them in English, you know, that, that, bond that connection of being able to communicate is lost and so so there's a million reasons why but um but i think for parents you know even if if they're fluent in english but they want to think about you know should i teach my child you know french or should i teach my child chinese we're here in the united states maybe we should focus on that but i just you know the younger that you start with the language the easier it is for children um to learn it to dominate it and and it won't hold them back. That's, I think, a, a big misconception that, oh, it's going to hold them back. Mm-hmm. Um, I have seen, though, parents, and then I'll wrap it up, my, my whole language uh, spiel after this, but I have seen parents sometimes, though, get a little, um, you know, excited about their child learning many languages, and so they're going to, you know, Russian classes twice a week, and then they're going to French, and, and again, I think, and, and then they're learning, you know, Chinese at home and they're learning English during the day as well. And I think, again, it just has to be looked at as like, what can a child handle within their daily schedule? (laughs) So sometimes I think just sometimes getting overambitious about any activity and trying to have a child do too much of of something, especially for children with um, language delays, they're going to need that reinforcement of that language. So um, even if you're teaching them, you know, Chinese at home and they're not hearing it again throughout the day, they're um, going to, to speak English at preschool, just make sure that they're getting good reinforcement of English at preschool and you're doing that good reinforcement of Chinese at home and having them, you know, talk with relatives and really bring in a reason why they want to use that language mm-hmm. rather than, no, you just have to speak it, you know? I mean, if yeah. we can give them a reason, then then they're more likely to to want to stick with it. Oh, that's, that's amazing. But I, I want to highlight one thing which is fascinating to me in 
I'm sure you're very grateful that you were able to shed that limiting belief that you had whenever you were in seventh grade, that you thought that you weren't good at languages and that just wasn't for you. Because just imagine if you would have carried that around for the rest of your life and never tried again, you would have missed out on this whole part of your life that you just love so much. And that happens to us. We develop these limiting beliefs when we're younger that, oh, we're just not good at that. Like one of mine, which I still probably have is that I'm not good at math, but I, and it makes me detest math. <laughs> so, but who knows? I could have been like a brilliant mathematician, you know, it's possible. Um, but no, I think that that's really great. That story. Okay, well, running out of time. So I just want to ask you one more question before you tell us about how we can reach you and how we can connect with you. But what habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it? And how do you maintain it? Um, you know, I think for me, which one? I have to say, I am someone who will do a habit like, well, I will, when you, you know, when I saw this as a question, I thought, hmm, like, <laughs> do I have anything that I do every single day? Um, but I think an, as an overall habit, um, two that I have that, that I found have helped me a lot is one, especially at the end of the day, is just looking over the day and, and being grateful for trying to find three to five things. And, and this is something I've done since I saw it on Oprah, like when I was a teenager. <laughs> so, and I was like, you know, that's such a good, good practice because I, I think sometimes I can, I can be a little bit not pessimistic, but sometimes I can let life, you know, get a little overwhelming and just focusing on, you know, three to five things that I'm grateful for. It doesn't have to be anything big. It can be that, you know, that, uh, I didn't have a lot of, you know, don't have a lot of laundry to do today. So, oh, good. That's all taken care of. You know, just finding those things. And the other one is um, I do try and make a habit of getting up early to do some kind of exercise, whether it's doing some yoga or going on a run. Um, almost every day I try and do that because it really puts me in just such a better mindset. I'm, I'm more positive. I have more energy during the day. If I just roll out of bed and go straight to, you know, to work and, and go from there, I just, I feel like exercise in the morning just kind of shakes me and, and wakes me up. And, and that's something else that, that I've tried to do almost every day. So yeah. oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I especially love that gratitude. I think that we probably need to spend more time talking about gratitude, but it can completely change your mood. You know, it's, it's one of those things when you, when you really focus on what to be grateful for, instead of focusing on all the problems and negativity in the world that can really just turn things around. Well, awesome, Becky. Can you tell us more about what services you offer and how listeners can connect with you? Sure. So I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. So if you're in that area, um, I, I offer services, um, just private therapy to, to families. So whether it's for, for speech or for feeding, um, and I, I have a little clinic in San Jose. Um, and also, you know, if parents have questions, I, I have colleagues that I know of all across the country, I'm always happy to try and, and connect. And um, we do have to teach within, I mean, um, provide therapy within our state. So, you know, I, out of state, I don't do, I do teletherapy for those who are, are within the state of California. But if you're out of the state of California, then, um, then it would be more referring to another another speech therapist. Um, I, you know, try and keep up a blog semi-regular with ideas of, of around my two passions. So around uh, feeding and around languages and bilingualism, language development. So um, you can find me there. My website is greenspeechtherapy.com and, and my email is becky at greenspeechtherapy.com. So you can also email me again with questions. I love, you know, trying to, to help 
parents navigate. Um, you know, it, it can be really challenging sometimes to know like, okay, well, where do I start with first? How do I get this going? And, and just kind of helping parents to, to get started in the right direction. Um, I can also provide you with the list of some of the books that I talked about. Some of my colleagues um, have written great books on breastfeeding. Diane Barr is um, a really great speech therapist who has done a, a lot of really good work around um, helping parents with with breastfeeding and early feeding and, and eating. So again, those, you know, are really important to, to get started and, and to kind of set up a life of, of healthy eating. Awesome. Thank you so much, Becky. And yes, I would love a list of the books and what I can do is I can list them on the, um, the show notes. And also when I post it on Facebook and also you said that charts with the different um, language development stages, that would be great. And I could put a link to your website once you get that up and running too. So great. Becky, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for providing us so much useful, beneficial information. And I hope that you have a plantastic day. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much, Dr. Yummy. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the Broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocketsurgeonsmusic. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at VeggieFitKids on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, or you can email me at VeggieDoctor at VeggieFitKids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast, and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again, and have a plantastic day. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.